I'm Pastor Daryl Curtis, and you are listening to my 54th sermon on the biblical design of gender, in which my point is that God wants our relationship with him to be intact, whether or not we keep the letter of the law. As a matter of fact, God recognizes our sinfulness and has made provision for our sins even before we commit them. The following is a presentation of the Family Life Baptist Church in Lansing, Michigan. For more audio and video content, please visit FamilyLifeBC.com. Good morning on this uh, 12th day of the month of December. I love Christmas carols. As a matter of fact, I was just standing here thinking that maybe next week uh, I'll shorten my presentation and play my Christmas concert that I haven't played in some years. But I used to love to, uh, back in the day, go to church and they would just listen as I sat and played Christmas songs. So I may I may take a few minutes next week and play my Christmas concert once again. But uh, today on this uh, 12th day of the month of December, our lesson for the morning is the uh, 54th part of our sermon series on the biblical design of gender. And the text this morning is in the 13th verse of the 12th chapter of the book of 2 Samuel, which says this. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. God bless the reading of his word and let us bow our heads in a word of prayer. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you afresh for the total sufficiency of Jesus Christ, for the perfect teaching ministry of your blessed Holy Spirit, and for his ability to explain your word. So, Lord, give us the words to say and let us say them with liberty, with clarity, and with boldness, and that somebody listening might believe the report. Thanking you in advance for all that you are going to do in the strong and perfect name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Thank you very much for listening to this, our message for today. And before we begin this, our next lesson, let us reiterate our reason for attending church. We attend church to obtain the mind of Christ, meaning to have the Bible illuminated in our minds so that we can clearly understand the principles that Jesus taught and base our daily personal decisions on those principles. We come to church because we want to be obedient to the Bible, which is the doctrine of Jesus Christ in an informed, insightful, and intelligent manner. Now, our takeaway point in this series on the biblical design of gender is that God has designed man as the cooperative coalition of husband and wife so that man can successfully achieve the objective that God has given us to exercise dominion over the earth, developing wisdom and knowledge in preparation for further responsibility in our eternal life. Now, in our last lesson, we reviewed the fact that the great King David, the champion of the Israelite army, that by the wisdom and power of God slew the giant Goliath, defeated the armies of the nations surrounding Israel, persevered through the reigns of King Saul and King Ishbosheth without speaking out or striking down these inferior kings, and was a man after God's own heart. This David actually had feet of clay. Now, David acquired his first wife, Michael, 
by bringing King Saul the foreskins of 200 Philistines after defeating the Philistines in battle. David acquired another, another of his wives, Abigail, from Nabal, as Abigail convinced David to not destroy Nabal for insulting his army after they defended Nabal's territory. David did not have to strike Nabal because God struck him and gave the wise Abigail to David as a wife. And acquiring new wives seems to be one of the spoils of war for David, whom at the time of this episode had acquired seven wives. But in this particular war with the Ammonites, David saw the resistance of the Ammonites as too trivial to participate in the war personally, so he sent his general Joab to oversee the fighting. But as David stayed home in his palace, acquiring a woman was obviously on his mind as he went up on his roof to look at the sights in the city. And from his rooftop vantage point, David saw the nude and beautiful Bathsheba as she was completing her purification ritual, and David's acquisition orientation got the better, better of him. David sent for Bathsheba, and when she came, David impregnated her. But unfortunately for David, Bathsheba was Uriah the Hittite's wife. Now Uriah was one of the soldiers in David's army under the command of General Joab. 2 Samuel eleven sixty eight records, Then David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah had come to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war prospered. And David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah departed from the king's house and a gift of food from the king followed him. Now David wanted Uriah to go home and make love with his wife to confuse the paternity of the child that she was carrying. But Uriah did not do so. And when David asked Uriah why he did not go, 2 Samuel 11 and 11 tells us, And Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go to my house and eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. So Uriah did not cooperate with David's plan, and so David got Uriah drunk and then sent him on. But Uriah still didn't go. Then 2 Samuel eleven fourteen through 17 says, In the morning it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah, and he wrote in the letter saying, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat from him, that he may be struck down and die. Then the men of the Ammonite city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the people of the servants of David fell, and Uriah the Hittite died also. And David murdered Bathsheba's husband Uriah by proxy. Second Samuel eleven twenty six and 27 records, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband, and when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. So David was home free. 
Bathsheba was David's wife. Their child was legitimate. And although Uriah was a casualty of the situation, David could rationalize that he didn't actually murder Uriah, but that Uriah was killed in battle. However, 2 Samuel 11, 26 and 27 ominously says of David, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Now, when I was a kid, the old folks used to say, God don't like ugly. And David has done something very ugly. But since David was the king, no one could bring David to account. David did commit adultery, which in Israel is punishable by death. But David has covered his tracks by marrying the woman with whom he committed adultery after killing the woman's husband. And he killed the woman's husband so indirectly that he cannot be convicted of it. However, 2 Samuel 11:27 says ominously of David, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Now Bathsheba was much better off being the wife of the king than she, than she was being the wife of a soldier. And Uriah, the simple soldier whose job was out on the battlefield, often neglected his wife. But Bathsheba could be with King David as he sent generals out to fight while he stayed home and kept Bathsheba company. Uriah was a working man, but the king could give Bathsheba access to the treasure house of precious metal that he was preparing for the house of God that was to be built. So Bathsheba was better off being the king's wife than Uriah's. However, 2 Samuel eleven twenty seven says ominously, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And the son with which David impregnated Bathsheba was going to live a life of privilege in the palace and could possibly become the next king. The boy was much better off being the legitimate son of the king than being the bastard child from an adulterous affair. However, 2 Samuel eleven twenty seven says ominously of David, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Matthew 16, 24 through 27 records that Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will record, reward each according to his works. The purpose of life on earth is not to have flowery beds of ease, but rather to do that which the Lord instructs us to do. Gaining the whole world for ourselves is worthless if the manner in which we do so is contrary to the word of God. And David has acquired his eighth wife in a manner that is certainly contrary to the word of God. Therefore, 
2 Samuel 11, 27, 27 ominously says of David, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So the Lord is displeased with David. And what is the Lord's reaction to that which David did? The Lord decided to give David a good talking to. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1 through 4 record, Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb which he had bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his own bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And as David listened to Nathan's account of the two men, David became angrier and angrier. Why would a rich man with herds and flocks take his neighbor's pet to serve his guests for dinner? David thought back to the episode of Nabah, who denied David's men a few sheep in payment for providing protection for neighbor's Nabal's shepherds. David was on his way to do great bodily harm to Nabal when Abigail, Nabal's wife, brought David the offering that Nabal should have given his men. But there was obviously no prudent wife like Abigail to stop this evil rich man from taking his neighbor's lamb. So David empathized with the man whose lamb was taken and made plans to take vengeance on the rich man in the story. 2 Samuel 12, 5 and 6 records, So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. But the context of the episode allowed David to forget his culpability with Bathsheba. 2 Samuel 12, 7 through 9 records, Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping, and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would also have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. The man of the, in the example with the herds and flocks was King David, who had great possessions. The man with the one lamb was Uriah, and the lamb was Bathsheba. 
David, who had access to women and riches, killed Uriah to get his one woman. Now we have a strange tendency. When God blesses us, we have the strange tendency to forget that our blessings come from God. Psalm 24 and 1 tells us, the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. Now, God gave us dominion over his creation in Genesis, but the fact that God gave us dominion implies that we do not have ownership. And the fact that we have dominion but not ownership means that we are stewards or caretakers and our obligation is to take care of that which belongs to our master as we follow his instructions for the administration of his possessions. So when we recognize that that which we possess is not our own, but is lent to us by the Lord, we understand the necessity to follow the Lord's rules. For if we do not, he may choose to take our possessions from us and loan them to someone else. We can never afford to be arrogant about that over which we have dominion because our arrogance leads us into confusing dominion with ownership. But on the rooftop that night, David became arrogant. God gave David power in abundance, which led David, David to developing influence in abundance, which allowed David to acquire possessions in abundance, which culminated in David having women in abundance. But while David was on the roof, he forgot that the earth is the Lord's and began thinking that part of it was his. And when people think that they have ownership, it logically follows that people also think that they can make the rule but we can't. God always makes the rules. And when we break God's rules, God sends us consequences. In some cases, the consequences are immediate. And in some cases, God gives us space to repent, but the consequences are eventually coming. Nathan transmitted God's consequences for David's sin to David in 2 Samuel 2. 12, 10 through 12, which says, Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son, for you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel, before the son. So not only is David going to be severely punished, but David is going to be punished publicly before all Israel. David committed adultery with Uriah's wife in secret, but David's wives are going to be ravished by someone in published, public so that all Israel can see the consequences of that which David has done. 
And so the question is, however, what was David's response to God's rebuke? Now, people's responses to rebuke are generally interesting. From the time that most of us are very small children, we learn from our parents that doing the wrong thing brings punishment. But our rebellious, curious, childish nature and lack of impulse control lead us into doing things that our parents tell us not to do. And after our parents punished us for the first time, our impulse was to lie about our misbehaviors because we wanted to misbehave, but we also wanted to avoid punishment. And people hate to be perceived as wrong. People normally become defensive about their sinfulness to either lie about that which they have done if they do not perceive any other way to avoid punishment or to attack the one that points out their sinfulness in order to deflect the emotional punishment that is inherent in being wrong. We see this daily in our courts of law when people devise elaborate defenses to justify their disobedience of the law. But David did not obfuscate. David did not try to deflect the, the true nature of his deed. David did not point out the fact that he himself did not kill Uriah, but was miles away from the army when Uriah died in battle. David did not try to justify his adultery with Bathsheba or do or say anything in his own defense. The A portion of our text for today, 2 Samuel 12 and 13, explains to us why David is a man after God's own heart, as it says, so David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. David's solution was to repent of his sin. And to repent of our sins will be the solution for us if our sin problem is ever to be solved. The reason that we must continually preach repentance hear about repentance and actually repent is that it is so easy for us to allow our sins to beset us, so easy for us to become defensive about the evil that we may do, and so easy for us to decide to call wrong right. But because of his relationship with God, David did not become defensive. As a shepherd, David relied on God when a lion or a bear took a sheep from the flock for which David had responsibility. David attacked the animal, relying on the supernatural strength that God gave him and killed it. And once we have an experience with God and understand his power and his mercy, we recognize that we can go to God for help even in our worst hour. Psalm 46, 1 and 2 tells us God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, even though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea. And God is our strength, even when we need the strength to endure his punishment for our sins. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5 through 7 tells us, Likewise, you younger people, 
submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility for God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. And it does not matter to God the nature of the sin that we have committed. God is our refuge and strength, and so we ought cast our cares, even our self-inflicted cares, on him, because he cares for us. And so David, even in the midst of being rebuked for the most egregious sin that he has ever committed, reached out to God. And that true and reliance on God, rather than perfection, obedience, or sinlessness, is that which made David a man after God's own heart. And the hymnologist characterized David's relationship with God when he said, what a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and grieves to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit, oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. God is seeking a relationship with us. And God wants our relationship with him to be intact, whether or not we keep the letter of his law. As a matter of fact, God recognizes our sinfulness and has made provisions for our sins even before we commit them. God told David through Nathan in the B portion of 2 Samuel 12 and 13, and Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin, you shall not die. And God makes that provision clear to us as he tells us in John chapter 3 verse 16 and 17, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Romans chapter 8 verse 1 and 2 tells us there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Can we still anticipate punishment for our sins? Yes, we can, just as God told David that he would be punished. But the punishment that we will receive will be for our benefit because God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. In our takeaway point for this sermon series, you make the point that God has designed man as the cooperative coalition of husband and wife so that man can successfully achieve the objective that God has given us to exercise dominion over the earth, developing wisdom and knowledge in preparation 
for further responsibility in our eternal life. In other words, as the old preacher used to say, there is another land where the wicked cease from troubling and the weary will be at rest and our life on this side is preparation for responsibility on the other side. Thus, we have to be disciplined. We have to be taught and we have to learn the lessons of this life. But being disciplined is not the same as being killed. Learning the lessons of this life is not the same as being condemned. So Jesus came, first of all, to pay the penalty for our sins, and secondly, to send us his spirit as a counselor to discipline and teach us the lessons of life on this side so that we can rule on the other side. Romans 6.23 tells us, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord, and that is the same thing that Nathan told David on behalf of God in the B portion of 2 Samuel 12 and 13. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. So saints, the Lord has put away our sins. Thus we have no need to be afraid of the consequences of our sins, but we need to recognize that the consequences of our sins are our schoolmaster. As Ephesians 4, 13 through 15 tells us, till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things who is into him who is the head, Christ. And 1 John 8 and 9 tells us, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the place that we should emulate David is that we should admit our sinfulness. We should not be defensive or devious about that which we know that we have done that is contrary to the law and the word of God, but that we should recognize our faults while being anxious to confess and learn the lesson of them. The understanding of God's dealing with David is a key to understanding the concept of grace. God graciously forgives our sins because God wants us to mature. But God still disciplines us for committing sin because without discipline, there is no maturation. Undisciplined children do not generally do better in life, but rather do worse because by not disciplining them, their parents teach them that there are no consequences to them for their disobedience, which ultimately is not true. 
Someone once told me that there's a 10 year period in the life of every child in which that child needs physical discipline. You can do it from the time the child is two until he is 12 or from the time the child is five until he is 15 or you can wait and let the police do it from the time the child is 18 until he is 28. Parents that cater to their children's feelings rather than working on their moral development are doing their children a disservice. But God does not do us that disservice. Hebrews 12, 5 through 11 tells us, and have you forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons? My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For, the, for whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjective to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as it seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And even Christ himself underwent the, underwent the discipline that led to his maturity. Hebrews 5, 5 through 10 says, So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was God who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as God says to Jesus Christ in another place, you are a priest forever, according to the according to the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, when Jesus Christ had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him, who was able to save him from death and was heard because he was because of his godly fear, though Jesus Christ was a son. Yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, Jesus Christ became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. And Jesus Christ suffered during his passion experience, which culminated in his death on the old rugged cross. And in his sacrifice on the cross, Jesus Christ learned that which it is to be a sinner and also learned how to teach us to obey God. Because as Hebrews 4.15 tells us, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus Christ knows the temptation. Jesus Christ knows the suffering and Jesus Christ through his temptation and suffering learned the kind of obedience that we need to know. 
And this is the kind of obedience that David learned. David learned the kind of obedience that was not defensive when he was confronted with his own sin, but says, even as Jesus Christ said in the garden of Gethsemane, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So as we think about this Christmas season, let us think about the real gift that Jesus Christ has given us. Jesus Christ has given us the gift of the assurance that we do not need to be defensive before God when he chastises us. Jesus Christ has given us the gift, given us the gift of his assurance that we are freed from the penalty and power of sin if we would but confess our sin. And Jesus Christ has given up, given us the gift of assurance that we can confess our sins without fear because he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, even when the cleansing involves discipline. And God gives us all these gifts and assurances because he loves us. John 3, 16 and 17 tells us, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And the love of God expressed in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is the greatest possible gift of love to us. So let us receive the love of God and Jesus Christ, let us eradicate defensiveness from our lives, and so let us love God and love one another as Jesus Christ has loved us. And that is our lesson for today. Let us pray. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you this morning for this lesson. We thank you for chasing. We thank you for pointing out our sins to us in such a way that we can understand our sinfulness. And we ask you, Lord, that you would take that stony heart away from us and put in us a heart of flesh that we might be able to not be defensive about those things that we have done that are not in line with your word. Help us to not justify those things that we have done wrong, but help us to recognize that repentance is in order when we sin. And let us come boldly before the throne of grace where you are, that we might be able to find help in time of need. And Lord, we thank you for your sacrifice on the cross because it gave us the assurance in your resurrection from the dead that we can come to you. Because now we know by your example that the wages of sin is not death because the gift of God is eternal uh, life through Jesus Christ. And now, Lord, we thank you for all that are in the house today. And we ask you, Lord, that you would give us traveling mercies as we go down from this place and then bring us back once again at the appointed time. And now, Lord, we thank you for all these things. We thank you for your goodness, for your mercy, and for your grace. And most of all, we thank you for your sacrifice on the cross, for rising from the dead on that side. Thank you, Lord, in the wonderful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.
thank you for listening. We hope you were blessed by this presentation. For more audio and video content, please visit FamilyLifeBC.com.